Our text this morning is Ezra chapter 9. Go ahead and open your Bibles there. Follow along on the transcript or uh, on your device. Ezra 9, the topic, the returned exiles who listened to Ezra teach God's word are described as trembling. The title of our message, The Trouble with Trembles. Let's have a word of prayer. Yeah, it's a groaner. Father, thank you so much for this assembly of your saints. We appreciate, Lord, that uh, we are justified, made righteous by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We ask that if there's anyone here that's not a believer, they haven't had their sins forgiven, they haven't met you at the foot of the cross, that they would be drawn by cords of love today as the Spirit reveals you to them, to their heart. Help us as we work through these verses, Lord, make them come alive in our hearing. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Daredevil was one of my favorite comic heroes until the Ben Affleck movie. It was seriously lame. And uh, no, I haven't watched the Netflix series yet, so can't talk about that. If you're not familiar with Daredevil, he's Matt Murdock. As a boy, he was blinded when a radioactive substance fell from a truck after he pushed a man out of the path of the oncoming vehicle. His exposure to the radioactive material heightened his remaining senses beyond normal human abilities. You've probably heard that without the help of radioactivity, if a person loses one of their senses, the others become heightened. Scientific American posted an article titled Superpowers for the Blind and Deaf, in which they noted research proving that, and I quote, the brain rewires itself to boost the remaining senses. They even have a name for these folks. They call them super sensors. In the Bible, we read a lot about the sense of hearing, and by that I mean our spiritual hearing. Romans 10, 17, we're told that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Uh, the Word has the power to save when it is heard with more than just our physical ears. In John 10, 27, we read, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. It's obviously spiritual hearing, since our great shepherd is in heaven, and we are on the earth. And then each of Jesus' letters to the seven churches in the Revelation reference spiritual hearing as he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Spiritual hearing is highlighted in the last two chapters of Ezra. The Israelites are described in chapter 9 as those who trembled at the words of the God of Israel. And in chapter 10, they're described as those who tremble at the commandment of our God. Trembling indicates they were super sensors having a heightened spiritual sense of hearing. Wouldn't you want to be a super sensor too? Of course. So let's organize our comments around these two points. Number one, come to God's word with the hearing of a trembler. And number two, go from God's word with the heart of a trembler. Let's take a look in verses one through four at coming to God's word. What's the trouble with trembling? It's that we can leave it or lose it. Our text bears this out. Some among the leaders of the Israelites had disobeyed God's command to not marry foreigners. They had left or lost any super sense of spiritual hearing. They certainly did not tremble at God's word. And so we begin in verse 1 of chapter 9, when these things were done. At least four months transpired since Ezra's arrival with the second wave of about 5,000 returnees. It's important to know that in those four months, he had been doing what he came to do, teach God's word to all Israel. 
It was his teaching that gives rise to the events of chapter 9 and 10. It was because he was teaching God's word that what happens here happened. And so he goes on in verse 1, the people of Israel uh, and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. I want to call them the Egyptites so bad, but... I'm going to guess that the guys who were teaching God's word before Ezra's arrival were skipping over the parts that describe their own disobedience. I mean, if your wife is an Ammonite, you can't really take as your text Deuteronomy 7.3 that says, don't make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son nor take their daughter for your son. It would be pretty obvious that you were walking in disobedience. In the book of Nehemiah, We're told that Ezra's style was to, and I quote, read distinctly from the book in the law of God and give the sense and help them to understand the reading. So it sounds a great deal like what we call expository or verse-by-verse teaching, where you're reading through God's word, giving the sense of it, and then making an application of it or making sure that you understand it. And one good thing, and there are many about teaching through the Bible that way, is that you encounter things you might not otherwise. Uh, you, in, you would have encountered the problem with intermarriage, and it would have been a problem for you as a leader. You would have had to repent of it or somehow lie to cover it. Uh, things that are good for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness are what you find in God's Word, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, but only as you go systematically and try and get the whole counsel of what God is saying so that you don't skip over things. Lots of people do topical teaching. Uh, that's okay, if, but not, you can't exist on a diet of topical teaching. Uh, I would like to eat Oreos all the time, uh, but the, I don't think I'd be healthy if I ate Oreos all the time, although they are vegan. I, I did find that out. Did you know that Oreos are, are vegan? They have no dairy at all in them. They have whatever chemicals are in them to make them seem delicious, are vegan. Uh, so anyway, uh, you, you, you can't live on that, and, and you can't live on topical teaching that doesn't give you the, con- the text in its context and in the greater context of the whole Bible. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we, we don't have the corner on that market. Lots of churches do verse-by-verse uh, verse teaching, but that's what you're going to want if you want to really know the Lord. Uh, Now, separation from all these ites in the promised land was pretty easy to spot since it involved mostly obvious outward things like your diet or your religion or your marriage. And so uh, if you were uh, eating a bacon sandwich on the way to a foreign temple with your ite wife, then it was pretty obvious you were in disobedience to the word of God. In Christ, we are called to remain separate from the world. We like to say you're in the world but not of the world. I think we have it tougher in some ways since it isn't always so obvious and since God gives us so much latitude. And so a separation safety check should be performed often. I can't tell you what you should be separate from in those gray areas. That's between you and the Lord. The Holy Spirit can. But we need to check ourselves from time to time, make sure in the different areas of our life that we're not too much in the world or so much out of the world that we're not doing any good. And so uh, the Christian life, it's not, um, it's not, it's something that needs to be analyzed and thought about and and prayed about over and over all the time. Uh, You can't just hit autopilot and and get going on that. And so verse two, they've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves. 
and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and the rulers has been foremost in this trespass. There are a lot of things in the law of Moses that can be confusing, sparking endless commentary by scribes and rabbis as they try to clarify. But prohibiting intermarriage with non-Jews is as clear as clear can be. It was sin, and it would bring devastating consequences. It wasn't just inconsequential. It had a consequence. While we're here, let me say this. Christian, I implore you, do not date a non-believer. Don't let yourself fall in love with a non-believer. Don't marry a non-believer. And beyond that, be sure that the believer you date and want to marry is solid. I've said this before, uh, and you think I'm joking, but call their pastor and get an interview going as far as who that person is. Or here's something I thought I'd work on, an evaluation form. When you, uh, you want to go to Christian school or Christian college, they send out an evaluation form to their pastor, right? How often does, uh, let's see, what name can I pick? Um, Zerubbabel. How often does Zerubbabel go to church? Is he serving in the church? What would you say about his character? Those kinds of things. Hey, if you're going to do that, you know, for Christian school, what about the most important relationship of your life? And so I'm maybe half joking about this, but I really do think you should do a spiritual background check uh, because so often people fall in love, then they find out that their, you know, a fiance is a Christian. Notice I use air quotes, Christian, and uh, but not a very good one. Uh, you know, they're not going to church. They're not serving the Lord. They they haven't prayed in ten years. You know those kinds of things. And so very important that uh, you just hold your horses and figure this out before it's too late. And so verse three, so when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe. I plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. In the four months since Ezra had arrived, no one had so much as hinted about this situation. Now, I've witnessed a lot of grief as a pastor and as a chaplain. People's reactions are all over the place. Some people just kind of get numb uh, you know, to bad news. Others shout and go crazy. I've seen people collapse and become combative, and we've had to call ambulances, all kinds of things. But I've never seen anyone tear out their hair. This is a whole new level of expressing grief. And Ezra, I think, is unique in the Bible in pulling out his own hair. It, Nehemiah is going to pull out some hair, but it's not his uh, later on in his book. Uh, uh, somebody texted me in between services, there is a condition called TTM, that's the abbreviation, it's uh, something I can't pronounce, uh, where people, it's a behavioral problem where people pull out their hair. Its major symptom is that you pull out your hair. I love medical stuff, don't you? You know, symptoms, pulling out hair. And so anyway, uh, you look like you're okay, right? Nobody's, nobody's twirling. If I keep on this subject, you're liable to pull out your hair. But guess what? 200,000 cases a year. Wow. Okay. Verse 4. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God, uh, words of the God of Israel, assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Intermarriage with the pagans always led Israelites into idolatry. They were one small step away from worshiping the gods of their foreign wives. This was part of the reason they had been carried away captive to Babylon in the first place. 
And so these foreigners hadn't converted to Judaism. They were still pursuing their own pagan practices. You might be aware that at some point in your walk with the Lord, you're going to be tempted to revisit your former sins. After years of victories over them, you start to feel as though you can dabble in them and not get drawn too far in. Let's try and finish well. I can't tell you, again, what to do or not do, but you've probably noticed over the years a lot of Christian leaders and just a lot of Christians that you don't hear about unless you're in their uh, sphere of influence. Uh, After years and years, decades of serving the Lord and walking with the Lord, they fall and fail. Uh, Praise the Lord. God restores and and rekindles their heart, Uh, but let's, let's just try and avoid that as much as possible and finish well. Trembling can have various connotations, even in the Bible. Non-believing sinners should tremble in fear at the wrath of God. Uh, They should know that the the wages of sin is death. They're spiritually dead. They will physically die. And if they don't receive Christ, they will be uh, eternally dead in the sense that they will be consciously awake in uh, a a place of torment. And so when you realize that, some of you remember when you first realized that, if you got saved as an adult, it's, it's a trembling. You know that you're a Christ-rejecting sinner on the way to hell. But the kind of trembling that I'm talking about this morning has another biblical connotation, and it's excitement and anticipation and expectation. The trembling that these guys were doing was excitement, anticipation, and expectation at hearing God's word. And so I'm suggesting that these Jews were already tremblers and that when they heard Ezra teaching through the word, it inspired them to act upon. In other words, they heard things that they hadn't heard before and because they had this love and this, this excitement for God's word, they knew they had to act on it. I'm fully speculating here, but Ezra must have gotten to portions of the law of Moses that talked about mixed marriages. Have you ever been in, in, in a Bible study and said to yourself or out loud, I didn't know that was in the Bible all the time. It's like, wow, where did that come from? Uh, I was just listening to something I had forgotten about the other day. There's there's this whole section in Leviticus about uh, trying to figure out if your wife has been unfaithful and giving her this weird drink, this bitter water to drink, and seeing if a curse comes upon her. I thought, what? Glad we're not teaching Leviticus for a while, but anyway. And, and so, you know, that's, these guys, they're sitting there, they're trembling at the word, they're excited about God's word, and Ezra's teaching through God's word, and they all of a sudden hear about this, and they think, really, that's in the, how, how come these other guys haven't told us that? They heard, they spiritually heard the prohibitions, and being super censors, they immediately went to Ezra to report the situation and to seek the Lord with him for the solve. Now, I'm sure that there are three or five or ten things we could list as steps to recapture and return to trembling. But more and more, that kind of suggestion is striking me as mechanical, especially when we're talking about something more emotive or what I like to refer to as romantic. Uh, You know, um, you can't always make a list of things and just do them. And In fact, if you pick some area of Scripture... Uh, you know, let's say prayer and go to, you know, all these different Bible studies on prayer, everybody's going to have a a list and they're all going to have a different list. Some are going to have three things you need to do or here's the five things you need to do, here are the ten things. Some will overlap, but it should tell you that there aren't just, 
you know, five things or three things or 10 things. Maybe this whole idea of listing things and uh, like we're grocery shopping or something, maybe it's, it's the wrong approach. And maybe we need a more emotive approach when we're talking about something like trembling before God in a relationship with him. It's more romantic than it is robotic. When Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus and told them to return to their first love for him because they had left it, he didn't give them any steps. He told them one thing was necessary, and that was that they repent. And so it's almost as if Jesus was saying, as soon as I point this out to you, you're going to know that you need to repent and get back to where you belong. They needed to have a massive change of heart, and nothing formulaic or mechanical was going to accomplish it. It it was, in a sense, just a realization of where they had been and where they were and a desire to get back there. It's a little or maybe a lot like marriage. Maybe you'll disagree with me on this, but I don't think you ladies will. You're not going to return to being in love by scheduling a florist to send your wife flowers every week for the rest of her life. It's mechanical. So when your wife comes to you, God forbid, I know this would never happen to anybody here. But if, uh, if your wife were ever to come to you and say, honey, you don't love me anymore, you say, I can fix, I'll fix that tomorrow morning. Hello, FTD. I, I, here's my credit card. Every Wednesday, I want my wife to get flowers. You pick them out. I don't care what they are, as long as they come every Wednesday for the rest of her life. Honey, I love you. It's, it's over. See, it's done. Yeah, that's, that's not going to do it. You need to go out of your way to show that you're listening and really in love. In fact, if you do that, you're going to be in deeper water than you thought. It's because you need romance, not this robotic mechanical stuff. And so if I no longer tremble in excitement and anticipation and expectation at God's word, I may need to repent. We may simply need to be reminded of a time we were a lot more excited to hear from the Lord because it's easy to just drift. This is the living word of God through which the creator of the universe and your savior is talking to you. Trembling seems the only proper response once you get back into that frame of mind. And then you go from God's word with the heart of a trembler. One of the first books I read as a new believer in Christ was Know What You Believe by Paul Little. Think about that title for a minute. Know What You Believe. You come to Jesus, you get saved, you believe in him, But you really don't know what else you believe until you read and study God's word. One thing, however, is true, and that is this. Whatever is in God's word is what you believe. You just don't know it yet. And so you come with a heart that says, I believe in Jesus, he's my savior. Now, what else do I believe? And what is, when you come to the word and you read it and it's clear or it's taught and you check it out and make sure it's true, that's what you believe and that's what you do. It's not up for... Uh, debate or argument or speculation because it's, it's all part of it. Uh, as a Christian, you should always come to the word pre-submitted to what God is going to say to you. And so when you came this morning, uh, you should come with the idea that, Lord, as you speak through the worship and through the word, whatever is true, I am going to receive and that's what I'm going to do because I belong to you. And, and we're always growing in that area, knowing more and more about what we actually believe, meaning what we must submit to as Christians. Ezra was pre-submitted to God's word because upon hearing it and, uh, and that it was being disobeyed, he went immediately from it in humility and obedience and acted upon it. And so verse five, 
At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Ezra led those who had gathered in a spontaneous service of public prayer. While it's not one of those sermon prayers where you're talking to people and not to God, uh, it's more than just a personal prayer. He's praying for the nation, and this is in a sense a prayer that each one of them should have prayed or could have prayed. And so verse 6, and I said, oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Ezra went from God's word humbled and concerned for the sinners enough to not try to distance himself from them. Instead, he obviously had compassion on them. Compassion is characteristic of a trembler. Remember, the Pharisees would look upon people and say, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner but that I do these things. Ezra said, uh, I I am uh, identifying with those. I'm trembling for those sinners. They need to be saved. They need to be uh, brought back into the fold. And so he had compassion. So if you're a person that has compassion, uh, you will be a trembler before God's word. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. The history of Israel is not pretty, but guess what? The history of the church isn't too pretty either. My Christian history and yours hasn't always been pretty. That's not to diss the church. We are, after all, Jesus' bride and will be presented spotless and without blemish to the Father in heaven. It's only to remind us to remain humble when we hear about others sinning. And so Ezra heard about this, and he went forward with compassion and humility as a trembler should. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place so that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. God had not forsaken his special people, but a remnant had returned And they had restored things to the point it could be seen as a measure of revival. Verse 9, we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Even though that first wave of returnees had sputtered in their task, God interceded and they had accomplished much moving forward. Verse 10, and now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. The leaders, some of them, had outright forsaken obedience to God's word. It caused me to think for a while about why we might do that. I'm sure we could list many reasons why. You, you probably have as, as many reasons as I would, but here's one that I think we'd all come to. The tabernacle and later the temple service involved a great deal of ritual, seems to be in our nature to think that if we perform the right rituals, we are right with God, regardless of the condition of our hearts. And so these rituals began as symbols, as uh, spiritual memorials, as uh, something physical to point uh, people to the spiritual behind them. But when you're making a morning and evening sacrifice and trimming the lamps all day and making sure the fire is burning at night and going through the Passover and slaughtering thousands and thousands of lambs and sin offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings and all these other things, uh, over time it becomes very ritual. I remember 
uh, as a young boy in the Roman Catholic Church, and then later as I visited, you know, or been at weddings in Catholic churches or not, and sometimes even uh, I've seen this with um, people, uh, priests giving last rites. It's, it, everything is so memorized that you don't, it, you're not even really engaged uh, with what's happening. You just, you're just, you know, speaking from memory without any emotion or any thought or anything like that because it's a ritual. It, it doesn't seem like it's something real. And so you, be, you reduce what ought to be a romance to a religion and, and you just go through the motions. As a Catholic boy who was certainly not saved, I deduced that I could sin as much as I wanted to, and so did all my Catholic friends, so long as I went to a ritual confession and prayed ritual prayers. Uh, and, and confession, it was ritualized. The, I would go in and say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned, for it has been, I lied right there and told them it was a week since my last confession. You don't want to go to a big parish where they don't really know you, so you can lie in the confessional. Uh, and then we would talk, and I'd, I'd forget some of my sins because once in catechism, I asked the teacher if I forgot some of my sins, would I still be absolved? And she said yes, and so I, I would forget my sins while I was in there. And then the priest would say something in Latin, and I would uh, have five or 10 or 15 prayers to pray over and over and over again. So it was a ritual. It was ritual forgiveness. And I had been ritually baptized as an infant. I'd taken ritual First Holy Communion. I'd gone through ritual confirmation. And on top of all of that, I'm full Italian. (laughs) Well, the Vatican? I mean, come on, it's not in your country of origin. Verse 11, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands and their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with impurity. Man, this is the nicest thing you could say about these guys. They were wicked beyond the norm, even for pagans. I read you a lengthy quote a few weeks ago by an archaeologist that concluded that infant sacrifice to their gods was pretty much unique to the land of Canaan in all of the world. You can find it in other places, but not on a scale and and on a wickedness in that area. Uh, And that alone ought to cause an Israelite to avoid relationships, let alone intermarriage. I mean, you meet a nice, you know, uh, Moabite girl at the cafe and you strike up a conversation and you say, hey, what do you think about having children? You know, if we got married, would you want to have kids? Well, sure, I'd like to have kids because we need to sacrifice several of them to Molech on his hot iron arms uh, so that we get blessed. You know, I'm just going to get a latte and not come back. You know? I mean, I'm making fun, but I mean, these are the kinds of people they were dealing with. They were grotesque in their immorality. Verse 12, now therefore do not give your daughters as wives for their sons. Don't take their daughters to your sons. Never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. That's a quick summary of what the law of Moses taught, pretty clear. Now don't forget, however, that a Canaanite wasn't predestined for destruction. Anyone could come to the God of Israel, convert and be saved. And in the Old Testament history of Israel, we see that happen uh, many times. Verse 13, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this. Three sieges by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the pilfering and the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the walls of Jerusalem, captivity for seven decades as as exiles in Babylon, and Ezra said that's less discipline than we actually deserved. 
A trembler acknowledges that God doesn't give us what we deserve. He is merciful. Even when things are at their worst, we could say, as Job did, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 14, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? Ezra knew that God could not renege on his forever promises to Israel, but he recognized that they actually deserved to die out as a nation, to be destroyed. If I read this and think, well, I'm not really that bad, then I guess I disagree with the great apostle Paul. In one place, he gave himself the title chief of sinners. That's in 1 Timothy 1.15. I don't think Paul ever had an office, but if he did on his desk, he'd have a nameplate that said Paul slash Saul chief of sinners. What are you the chief of? I'm the chief of sinners. And then in Romans 7, he lamented that the things he wanted to do, he didn't do. And the things he didn't want to do, those are the things he did. And he said, I'm a wretched man. This isn't a false humility. It's magnifying God's grace. I've had this happen to me. I've spoken to you before, but sometimes in a, in a session, you know, where the marriage is in trouble, uh, it's usually the husband says, you know, I'm, I'm an absolutely wretched individual. And I'll say, yes, you are. Well, I didn't mean it, you know, not, not everybody, no one's 100% wretched. And I go, hey, you said it and you're here, you know. And so people, that's a false humility when you say, well, I'm just a wretch. Uh, Paul meant it. Ezra could identify with sinners because he believed that but for God's grace, he could be doing what they were doing. That's one way of having a proper humility. It's, there's many, but one is that you think, but for the grace of God, there go I. And you're, you, you, know, you tremble at God's word that it still means something to you, that it's still alive in your heart, keeping you from sin. Verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. If no one could stand before him, how are they standing before him? Grace and mercy were being made available while God was long-suffering. He was not willing to punish his beloved people if he didn't have to. His long-suffering had waited hundreds of years before he brought them uh, into Babylon captive. God is an interesting parent. In one sense, he's like the the parent at Save Mart who keeps telling their child that they're going to discipline them. If you, if you touch that bag of Doritos one more time and put it in the cart, it's all over for you. What did I just tell you? Don't do that again, honey. Now, really, if you do that again, all right, I mean it this time. Now the kid might actually listen because he's gotten to the I mean it stage. But he still knows he has four or five different chances and and that you're in public and that you really can't do much about it because everybody's looking at you. The Christians are hoping you'll take the kid outside and spank him. And the non-Christians, they're already dialing CPS. And so it's it's like a madhouse, you know. And kids, these little four-year-olds, they know it. Somehow they know there's a network of four-year-olds that that is, is communicating on computers after you're asleep about how to blow your parents' minds in the store. And you and I are thinking, you know, uh, hey, just don't threaten, do something. Uh, The kid knows you're not going to do anything. And so just do it. But God is like that with us. He says, hey, you know, this is sin and these are the consequences. 
yeah, I'm gonna give you some grace. I'm gonna give you a grace period here. Don't, Gene, don't do that anymore. I, I thought I told you not to do that anymore. I'm gonna have to act here if you, if you, you know, and it goes on and on. And, and, and so God is long-suffering towards us as well. Now, Ezra went forth from God's word and he acted upon it. He fasted and prayed and he's gonna do a whole lot more in chapter 10. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. You've undoubtedly heard some Bible teacher refer to the Bible as God's love letter to you. The only thing I would add to that is that while most love letters are about the object of your love, the Bible isn't about us, it's about God. Through it, he reveals himself to us as the one who so loved the world that he sent Jesus, as the one who draws us with cords of love, as the one uh, who loves us so much. Having said that, if you've ever been in love, and I'm sure you have, and received a love letter, you probably trembled with excitement, anticipation, and expectation at its contents. And I bet you did that even after reading it multiple times, as you kept it in its little secret location where nobody could find it, and you smelled it for perfume, and you opened it up, and it's, it's, it's exciting. That's the kind of thing we're talking about this morning. Not making lists or figuring how, you know, if, you know, how much more of the word I can read. And, you know, today, I realized the other day I could, I could, when I'm listening to the audio Bible, I could make it go at one and a quarter speed. Whoa, man, I get through the Bible in a year, in a day. But uh, remember, we used to do that with Chuck Smith's tapes. You'd have to go like 10 times faster just to get to a normal speaking voice because Chuck, you guys remember Chuck, it was really slow. You know... God loves you. Thanks, Chuck. But that's, you know, you've, you understand this love letter concept and really all, I, I should have just started and ended with this, but that's all I'm talking about this morning. If this is God's love letter to you and it is in which he reveals himself to you as, as the greatest lover of all time, shouldn't we tremble at it the way we would at any human letter? Only a hundred million times more? We should. And so if you're not trembling at God's word, talk to the Lord about it and get back to it.